This is the One Thing Podcast, where we teach you the surprisingly simple truth behind extraordinary results. I'm your host, Jeff Woods. With everything that's going on in the world, every single one of us is dealing with one thing, fear. Fear of the unknown, fear of what's going to happen to our businesses, our income, our jobs. How are we going to get foods? Oh my gosh, what are we going to do without toilet paper? All of these things are fears. Yet, how do you actually deal with that fear? Last year, I had an opportunity to speak at an event out in Martha's Vineyard, which was on the bucket list for me. And while I was there, I had the chance to meet the individual that you are going to meet today. He goes by the fear guru, which I was going, okay, what's that about? But it turns out not only is he truly a subject matter expert when it comes to fear, he has also been an extraordinarily successful entrepreneur. He has started multiple companies, has had some very big wins with them, uh, and he's worked with Navy SEALs, pro athletes. He also holds many world records himself as an extreme athlete. He today is the author of the brand new Wall Street Journal best-selling book, Fear is Fuel. We are so excited to introduce you to my friend, Patrick Sweeney. Eating healthy is an investment. It's an investment in yourself, but it also often requires an investment of your time. But good news is, Factor has delicious ready-to-eat meals that are ever fresh and never frozen. They're chef-created, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. With Factor, you can choose from a weekly menu of up to 35 options, including popular things like Calorie Smart or Keto Direction or Protein Plus or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover 60 more add-ons every week like breakfast on the go, lunch snacks, beverages to help you stay fueled, feel good all day. And we know our listeners here at The One Thing are focused on health and health goals. That's why we choose to partner with Factor. And if you visit factormeals.com slash 150 and use code 150, you can get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. Again, that's factormeals.com slash ONE50 and use code ONE50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. Hey, Jeff. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, First of all, it's great to catch up with you, uh, even though it's virtually amidst all this. And secondarily, thank you all for everyone who's tuning in to listen. Hopefully, we've got some good neuroscience, uh, some brain hacks will help you reprogram your brain for success and, uh, and, and courage and confidence. So before we dive into that, I would love for people to dive into your background a little bit sure. more because if that showed up to me on a resume, I would think it's fake. <laughs> well, it's uh, it, it's it's a hell of a story, and it's what drove me to write the write write the book. But um, you know, the short story, short version is Jeff. I grew up uh, son of an Irish immigrant in blue collar area of Boston. First kid in my family to go to college. And, uh, and when I was growing up, I, you know, I was bullied. I had an abusive grandfather and uncle, uh, and, and I was constantly looking for self-esteem and self-confidence. And, and, uh, you know, we were told, uh, as you can imagine, growing up blue collar, that if you're, if you're a cop or a priest, you know, you've got, you're, you've got it made. <laughs> that's, that's what your family does. That's what we can expect for you. And, you know, if you can't make it to the police department, maybe it could be a fireman. And so the the upper limits that my family set early on as, you know, sort of part of our culture were deeply ingrained in me. And I, I continued to try and I, I looked everywhere to find self-esteem. 
and I had a couple big traumatic memories in the in the book, I call these our fear frontier, and everybody has them before the age of 10 or 12, but mine in particular was seeing a plane crash on TV that's planted a, a deep seed of terror for flying. And, and that stuck with me my whole life. And you know, as I got older, I was trying to find self-esteem and self-worth by being an athlete, being the best I could. And that led me to training for six, six years for the Olympics. And I finished second in the Olympic trials and was about 10th in the world in rowing. I rowed the single shell. And, um, you know, looking back and what I know now about the neuroscience and myself, uh, I, I could have been an Olympic gold medalist. And instead, I was, you know, had the wrong motivation and, and um, uh, was just making all of my decisions out of fear. And then the same thing happened after the Olympics. I went back to uh, business school uh, graduated near the top of my class, really worked hard just to try and improve myself. I had this one goal, and that was a net worth of $40 million by the time I was 40 years old. So 40 by 40 was my only mantra. It wasn't you know, caring for my lovely wife, spending time with my daughter, or you know, creating great relationships. It was just about building this image Based on on you know what I thought was was uh, you know, the self esteem and self self worth and it actually eventually lended lent me to to a point where I had a low level of cortisol of the stress hormone constantly coursing through my body because I was afraid of everything Jeff I was running this amazing company. And I should have been having the time of my life. And instead, I was afraid. I was, I was afraid employees were going to leave. I was afraid the competitors were going to come in and, and undercut us. I was afraid you know, these great clients we had were going to go someplace else. So I was constantly living in fear. And that kept the, the, the <laughs> spigot on in, of that stress hormone just going through my body all the time. And it, it manifested itself in a really uncomfortable feeling. And the way I dealt with it was drinking. So I'd have seven or eight beers, you know, every night and probably twice that on weekends. And, you know, about three years after grad school and, uh, I was 35 years old and, and the, um, woke up in the morning and couldn't move my arm and ended up being terrified to go to the doctor, but three days later I had to go to the doctor and I walked in and he said, you know, it doesn't look that bad. It looks like a, a staph infection. We see that a lot with guys <laughs> who go to the gym. So I'll give you some antibiotics. We'll take a, a blood test and the nurse will call you back this afternoon. And uh, as you know, Jeff, the, the nurse didn't call me back. The doctor did. And that one, that one phone call dramatically changed my life. And 24 hours later, I was up at Johns Hopkins because the local hospital in Virginia had no idea how to deal with whatever it was I had and turned out to be a very rare uh, case of leukemia. And the doctor said to me, you know, uh, I, I hope your affairs are in order and it, it probably wouldn't be a bad idea to say your goodbyes. And I was 35 years old thinking I've just completely wasted my life. And, and it was at that point when I looked back with a tremendous sense of regret that I had wasted my entire life because the whole time I was trying to build up this shell of somebody else. I, I never really knew the authentic me and, and I was a coward and uh, I was afraid of everything. And all I could think about was my, my daughter who was a year old. She was with her grandparents 
by the way, my wife was six months pregnant when all this was happening. And, um, and all I could think was my daughter was going to have a memory of a dad who was too afraid to get on a plane and, and take her to Disney World. So long story short, not to give away the ending, but I lived <laughs> by, uh, by, the, by the grace of God and the great uh, doctors up at, at Hopkins. And through some visualization, I actually learned at the Olympic Training Center. I got out, and and when I did, uh, I had to I had to actually do just what we're doing now. I had to sequester myself for six or eight weeks while my immune system built back up. But when that was done and I could go out, I went down to Leesburg Airport, and uh, and and I said I wanted to take flying lessons. I'm going to overcome this fear of flying. And uh, I, the the first couple of lessons were absolutely terrifying. I mean, I I had to pee like four times before we even got out to the plane, <laughs> and. And then, you know, we hit, we hit turbulence. The first time we hit turbulence, I think I pooped myself just, you know, a little bit, not a lot, but it was terrifying. And then an amazing thing happened. I fell in love with flying. This thing that I had been scared of for 35 years became one of my greatest sense of, of joy and fulfillment and passion. And I got my private license, got my instrument rating, went on to get my per- commercial license, even though I'm never going to work as a pilot. And now, today, 15 years later, I'm the guy who's, who's competing in aerobatics flying a stunt plane. And just 15 years ago, if you even talked about that to me, I would have had a, a tremendous fear reaction. So that's what led me to the book, Jeff, is, is I wondered how I could go from being the world's biggest wimp, a complete sissy, to all of a sudden Captain Courageous. And, and mm-hmm. I wanted to keep pushing myself and keep finding out where the edge of it was. And what I determined was on the other side of fear is where all our dreams lie. And I wanted to find the neuroscience of it. So that's why I interviewed these 35 neuroscientists across the globe and just found some incredibly fascinating stuff that, that can lead anyone to reprogram their brain. So you don't have to go through a, a near-death experience to reprogram the brain. Anyone can do it. And, and now's a great time to, to be thinking about that. Yeah. So w- walk us through that a bit. And, and maybe might make sense to unpack what exactly is fear and what happens. So, so fear is... Uh, the root of all fear is based on the brain's uh, primary role. And our brain is one big prediction engine. And so we have these things that get loaded into our unconscious. This, we have this giant subconscious database. So this database is the size of 500 of Apple's most powerful MacBook Pro computers. So if you can imagine 500 computers stacked up, that's, that's what we can store in our subconscious mind. And when we're growing up, this is the really messed up thing. Other people populate our subconscious. So we don't choose what language we speak. We don't choose where we're born. We don't choose um, the color of our skin. We don't choose the language we speak. But all of those things go into our subconscious decision-making. And we make about 80% of our decisions every day subconsciously. So we, we do it and, and without even thinking about them. And so... The way that our brain, so the the brain is a prediction engine, and what it tries to predict is the outcome of current events. So, so the event that's happening right now, it's trying to predict the outcome. So, in our, as our subconscious is going through this, everyone's trying to think, oh, okay, people are saying this is a this is a uh, podcast with Jeff Woods. I'm listening to this guy Sweeney. Uh, you know, I'm going to hear stuff about neuroscience, and if all of a sudden 
you know, snakes started coming out of their earpieces, they'd freak out because it's not in the realm of things we predict. So if, uh, an easier example, when you walk into a room, you turn on a, a switch, the, the light switch, you're going to flip the light switch. Your brain is thinking there's a 90% chance that the switch is going to turn on. There's a 10% uh, chance that the, the light won't turn on. And if the light doesn't turn on, then your brain says, okay, there's a 95% chance the bulb's burnt out. There's a 5% chance the circuit breaker switched. And, and so we go through the day constantly trying to predict events. And we predict them based on our past, based on something called prior beliefs. And if something happens that we can't predict, or if something happens that's novel, and, and novel is just a fancy way of saying new and unknown, like novel coronavirus. So if something happens that's novel, we don't know how to pre- predict the end of it. So we produce something within our body that's called free energy. And it's a way of describing or, or measuring the uncertainty or the, the surprise. And when we do that, we've got this gland at the base of our brain called the amygdala. And a lot of people have heard about the amygdala. It's, it's often called the lizard brain or the, the reptilian brain. It's a small gland. It's the base of your brain shaped like an almond. And it only does three things. It does fight, flight, or freeze. Those are the three actions that it does to make sure we're procreating our genes onto the next generation. So <laughs> all it cares about is survival and procreation. It doesn't care about happiness doesn't care about building the most successful real estate business in the world, doesn't care about going to vacation in Hawaii. All it cares about is procreating the genes onto the next generation. So everything it does is reactive. The problem is when the amygdala switches on, it produces this fear cocktail in our body. It takes over the central nervous system and it it produces adrenaline and DHEA and cortisol. And we feel those things as changes in our body. And a lot of times we feel those as fear. So it, you'll, you'll feel your heart beating faster, your breath getting shallow, your, your uh, leg shaking, your jaw tightening, all those things. So, so fear is just the perception that we can't predict something in the future. But the thing is, we, we have that fear center called the amygdala. What most people don't know, Jeff, is we also have a courage center. It's called the SGACC, or subgenial anterior cingulate cortex. And I, and I think the reason we don't know about it is it's just too tough to say. I had to practice that for like months before I could get to <laughs> roll off my tongue. So that's, that's the, the big difference in the two. We, we can choose... To, you, to make our decisions based on the amygdala, which is a center of fear, or we can choose to make our decisions based on the SGACC, which is the courage center. Because at the end of the day, every single decision we make in our life can be boiled down to either a decision based on fear or a decision based on opportunity. If we make a decision based on fear, it always leads to regret, to shame, to failure. If we make our decisions based on opportunity, it leads to success, to happiness, to fulfillment, and to great learning and growth. And at the end of the day, that's, that's where our, our true happiness and passion comes from. What are you seeing with everything that's going on right now as being some of the fears that people are having that they have an opportunity to work through? Uh, you know, there's a tremendous opportunity right now, Jeff. And, and you know, I was running one of the first cloud companies. Uh, we started in 1999. I raised about $30 million in venture capital and debt. 
And every decision I made was based on fear. Uh, fortunately, we had this great CFO. He was the original CFO at, at Capital One, took them public, and then came to work with me because uh, he wanted to get into the dot-com excitement. And he was just so level-headed and, and such a calming force. And one of the things he said that I love, I, I use this saying a lot, is nothing is ever as bad as it seems and nothing's ever as good as it seems. So just you know, know that we'll get through things. And after 9-11 happened, we actually ended up getting poised to take uh, a bunch of acquisitions. We, we found a bunch of competitors who were too afraid to risk either their payroll or risk losing customers or risk you know, not, not taking a paycheck themselves. So we did uh, a couple of acquisitions that ended up setting us up really for a, a, a very nice sale, but a sale that probably shouldn't have happened. And if I had that same level of courage that I have today and the understanding of our decision-making, I would have kept the company, which, <clears throat> which you know has been sold since a couple of times, but now it's now worth uh, about three and a half or four billion dollars. So, knowing what I know about fear and and uh, courageous decision making, I think you know if you if you look at every time you feel a change in your body as you're making a decision, what you can say to yourself is, okay, that amygdala is trying to take over my decision-making. That anxiety that I'm feeling means that that I'm having a fear reaction. And that fear reaction is a knee-jerk reaction. And one of your principles should be to, to stop every time you feel that, you feel that change, because you're more likely to make a bad decision unless you consciously stop and try to engage your uh, both hemispheres of your brain. Because when we make that decision based on the amygdala, there's something uh, that, that we create, something called valence, where we create shortcuts to our uh, the good side or the bad side of our brain. And so we literally only use half our brain when the amygdala is trying to make a decision. So if you can say stop, and then one of the things I teach in the, in the book is the base methodology. And that's the platform that I teach people to to use in decision-making. And the B stands for breathe. So it's it's super simple. And, and I highly recommend people practice it every morning when they wake up because it then becomes a habit and you start to fire the same neurons together. And those neurons that fire together will wire together and they can change at any age. That's the great thing about neuroplasticity or the ability for the brain to, to keep evolving. But a four by four is simply breathing into a count of four, mm-hmm. holding it for a count of four, breathing out for a count of four, holding it out for a count of four. So you can almost picture the image of a, a box. So the Navy SEALs learned that at um, sniper training camp, and they call it box breathing for that reason. So doing that, doing that four by four, whenever you feel the tension or you feel anxiety or feel getting nervous about something, doing that four by four breaks the grip that the amygdala has on the sympathetic nerve system. And, and that's where, that's the base of your brain, the, the real primitive area where you have the pineal gland, gland and the pituitary gland and those things that produce adrenaline and produce that, that fear cocktail. And so if you just simply breathing is a great way to be able to step back and start to look at, at the situation. And, and if you're feeling that fear, then that used to be an early warning system for survival, but now it can be an early warning system for opportunity. Because if you're scared about something, if something's it's pushing you to get out of your comfort zone, then that means there's an opportunity there. 
So you want to run towards it. You don't want to try and avoid that feeling. You don't, you don't want to be scared or nervous or upset when you have that feeling. You want to say to yourself, okay, I know that, that that neuroscience guy, Sweeney, was telling me that this is where our opportunity lies. I'm going to go towards it. And, and the first step in going towards mm-hmm. that is taking a, a few of those four by fours and, and making the conscious decision. Because at, at the end of the day, we have to act courageously and confidently to feel confidently. The people who never get there, as you know, Jeff, yourself, are the ones who say, I'll do it when I feel confident. Right? I'll start my business when I feel it's a good time and I feel confident. It's the other way around. You start your business, you make it through, you, you win, now you feel confident. So that's, that's the, the thing that people have to remember, that it's the action and it's moving towards those fears that has to come first. So, so walk us through again. You, you said basis starts with breathing. What walk us through the acronym? Sure, it's um, you know it's it's a couple chapters in the book, but I'll give you the the Cliff Notes version. The breathing is a four by four. The second thing you do once you've started to breathe, and you can you you try to detach yourself from the situation. So A is to assess the situation. If you step back and you're able to look at it not like an actor in the scene, but to look at it like a producer, then what you can do is decide where the opportunity lies. Mm-hmm. So many of us, everybody knows this, you've been you know, driving on the highway and, and maybe you're late for something, and then all of a sudden, some old lady cuts you off and you, you flipper the bird. And, and you think to yourself, you know, I, I'm so angry, I'm so mad that, that you're flipping off someone. Now, if you were up in a helicopter watching the scene, just hanging out, relaxing, You'd see, you'd see some dude flipping off his grandmother. <laughs> and, you'd think, and you'd think, man, what's up with that guy? And, and that's the way we are. When the amygdala tries to hijack our thinking, it takes over any rational, rational decision-making because it hijacks something called the working memory, which is in the front of our brain. There's an area called the prefrontal cortex. The, the prefrontal cortex doesn't develop until we're in our mid-20s. The amygdala, that fear center, is fully developed at birth. In fact, it's, it's developed in the third trimester. So we come out of the womb with the ability to fight, flight, or freeze. And that becomes our default. So our default is to defense. Our default is to fight, flight, or freeze. And then that becomes a habit for the next 18, 20 years until the prefrontal cortex develops. So the, the default is to defense, but really all the potential is in the present. Mm-hmm. And you have to be able to step back from the scene, be in the present moment and look at the opportunities and, and try and play things out two or three levels down. If I make this decision, this is going to happen. If this happens, then I have two more decisions to make. So the assessing the situation allows you to step back and instead of being behind the wheel, you know, enraged, you're up in the helicopter saying, okay, I see the traffic, I see cars, I see a turn up here, I see this exit. I've got much more information to make a really good decision. And so that's the A, breathe, assess the situation. The S is pretty simple, but it's amazing how well it works. And that's to smile. There was a, a great study at Emory University, and they took uh, several hundred. Uh, participants, and they divided the group in half. They had a control group, and they started scanning their brain and testing their cortisol levels as they watched horror movies. And then they had another group 
same same age, same set of students, that sort of thing, playing, watching the same movies. And they didn't want to tell them to smile. And what they were trying to prove was the old adage, grin and bear it. And instead of telling them to smile, they gave them a chopstick to hold in their teeth. So, so they had all these kids watching horror movies with a chopstick clenched in their teeth. And what that 42 muscles in their face, the same muscles you use for smiling. And the, the group that had a chopstick in their mouth had an 80% reduction in cortisol, that stress hormone. So, so it's, it's amazing neuroscience how something simple as that can, can help release the grip on that sympathetic nerve system again and, and stop the flow of cortisol. Oh, so breathe, fascinating. assess the situation, smile. And uh, the E is to eliminate valence and eliminate shortcuts. And that's what I was talking about uh, when you use one half of your brain. This is, this is a little bit more difficult to uh, explain, and I'd highly recommend if, if people are interested, they buy Fear is Fuel and, uh, and look through chapter eight and nine on the base method, because this is, this is a really um, impactful method of looking at how you make decisions to eliminate the valence. Because what happens is our subconscious that that brain of ours that's populated with all those things about our tribe, about the languages we speak and everything else, we try as quickly as we can to basically judge everything. Do, uh, do we want to mate with that or do we want to kill that? And, <laughs> and, and so, so we, we're doing that as quickly as possible. And to do that, we have these shortcuts. And this wasn't proven until 2016 when uh, the great neuroscientist named Anna Byler and her colleague Kay Tai actually could watch the neurons of mice firing. And what they found is when they gave them something sweet, the neurons on the left side of their brain fired as they recognized it and then moved towards it. When they gave them uh, a shock or a, or a startling noise, the neurons on the right side of their brain fired and they made a decision. And they saw that when there's, a, there's either a threat or um, something that, that might be procreating. So when there's something good, it's only the right side, or sorry, the left side of our brain that we use. When there's something bad, we always use root it to the right side of our brain. So that shortcut, we're literally using half our brain. If you can stop, and, and literally sometimes it's just saying stop, and you can ask yourself, well, why is it that this is, this is causing me to be concerned? Why is it that I'm getting angry? Why is it that I'm getting sad? And you can look at it and try and be curious. That's the whole key. Then you, ha- then you force yourself to fire those neurons on the other side of your brain. And you're using your whole brain. You're getting twice as much processing power, twice as much intelligence if you just replace judgment with curiosity. Mm, I love that. I remember one of the conversations we were having when we talked about acknowledging and dealing with the fear. Like so much of it just came down to basic awareness. And it really, I've, I've been on this journey because my wife and I, as we go to um, a marriage coach as well, we just even being aware that in those moments when there's tension, before we even look at the other person, just to become aware of what's happening in our body and not coming from yeah. the position of, I feel stressed. It's, I'm noticing that my chest is getting tight. 
I'm yeah, noticing yeah. that I'm clenching my jaw and looking at it from that producer perspective, like you were saying, and giving it a name. It was it's amazing how you're then able to actually respond versus react. And and it's funny, that's a great way to say it, Jeff, because there's sound neuroscience as to why naming your fear, naming your stress is is much better. When when we go to sleep every night, our uh, our temporary memory, you know, what's called our, our working memory, if you think of it as like the random access memory on a computer, that can only store so much information. Mm-hmm. Then when we go to bed at night, our brain picks out what's useful and it consolidates it and it puts it into our long-term memory. And, and that's what happens when we have rapid eye movement sleep or REM sleep, when our eyes are going back and forth, we're consolidating the memories. Mm-hmm. And when we do that, if we name those memories, then our brain knows where to put them. If, if we can literally go to sleep at night saying, I felt really angry when uh, the kids left the cover to the hot tub off. <laughs> and, and, and you name that, uh, that feeling and, and your brain is much more readily able to decide if it's information we need to store or information we need to let go. And the other thing, and, and this comes into, I see people doing this all the time, entrepreneurs, and, and this is a, a great lesson for all the realtors out there, is we have the ability to be highly creative and highly innovative no matter where we start out. And the way to do that is to remember that most of our life living with that subconscious database that other people put in. We've got a group of neurons and synapses that are very close together. You could almost think of it as, as you know, sort of something the size uh, uh, of a tube of toothpaste on one side of your head. And we become really comfortable and those neurons start to wire together from birth. And so once we, we get stuck in that rut, that's what happens to a, a lot of people who, you know, you hear people working for the weekend or unhappy with their job or never reaching their potential. The people who become successful are the ones who learn how to fire the neurons on the other side of the brain away from where they are. And, and where you do that is first you, you get out of, you get away a little bit by thinking, okay, well, I'm more curious if I did something a little different, if I tried something new, if I, if I took a risk. And what it boils down to is you take a little bit of risk, then you've got a neuron firing, you know, maybe a, a couple of millimeters away. Then you take another risk, and that's a couple millimeters further away from that. And then you take another risk and do something something different, and that's a couple millimeters away from that. And then you get with your group of, you know, maybe you have a mastermind group or something like that, and and they see you doing something, and you say, "My God, how did you make that leap? You're so creative." In reality, from a neuroscience perspective, the process isn't going from not being creative to making this this great leap. It's a process of figuring out how to be creative and chaotic, right? Like, Like when they designed the iPhone. They came up with three or four different designs, and it was they they had people working all night and, and things were going crazy. Once they had a design, they consolidated everything and said, okay, now we've got to focus on being efficient. So we can get this to market, we can sell it, we can produce as many as we can. So they went from that create, creative phase into this efficiency phase. And then once they started selling and they were getting good at it and things were sort of coming into a groove, they said, okay, we got to get back to that creative phase because now we're, we're, we've stopped expanding the space in our brain we're using. 
So anyone can do that on their own if they if they recognize. And I do this with my businesses all the time and businesses I've invested in. I said, look, we we have to have a creative phase till we come up with some new, some different things, till we have a lot of failures. Because if we don't have failures, then we're not learning anything. And so you you pick a, a quarter or part of the year or something like that where you're willing to take some new risks. And then you take all the lessons from those those really innovative and crazy stuff you tried. You're going to pull out one or two gems, figure out how to make those efficient, You know, work it for another couple of quarters that way, and then go back again. Yeah. Keep that loop going. Well, the thing that I hear that's really important is that it's not like you go from facing a fear to overcoming it. It's not like a switch. What I'm hearing is it's one step at a time. Facing it yep, bit it. by bit by bit. And we've had conversations where, you know, when I said, what's one thing someone can do to begin facing their fears? And you said, just face a fear once a day, even on a micro That's level. It. Walk us through that a little bit. So, you know, the, we all have all sorts of different fears. And uh, one of the big fears in uh, people who are entrepreneurs, whether it's real estate agents or, or doctors or, or consultants or you know, technology people, it doesn't matter. Depending on where they come from, uh, like for, take me, for instance, and, and the, the people I grew up with, blue collar area, uh, you know, parents making $25,000 a year at, at sort of their high point. And uh, all of a sudden, you've got a, you've got a person who uh, maybe she's a salesperson or maybe she's an entrepreneur and she starts making $200,000 a year, $250,000 a year, can buy a Porsche and can send the kids to private school. And, uh, and really, she could be making a million dollars a year, but she has this fear uh, that, that neuroscientists call loss aversion, right? She starts to artificially value what she has versus what the potential was. Or people have, you know, tons of people, no matter where they come from, have a fear of change, Right? They think that things are going well now. If something happened, it could it could just end up being worse. My life could be awful. All of these fears and, and rejection from the tribe and abandonment and everything else have to do with uncertainty. And when I started running my second company after I got out of Hopkins, I completely changed. I, I leaned into the uncertainty by, by being authentic. Instead of being the guy who had to be in a big, tough, I'll take care of everything, everything's under control, and, and that image I presented, I got out of Hopkins and I said, look, we might be out of business in six months. I, I don't know. Um, we, we, you know. We lost a big client. Our COO quit. You know, and, and so when I became authentic, Everybody else became authentic, but what it took for me to get there, you know, and, and some people say, well, you know, what happened to him? It was just what you were saying. Every day I'd face something that would, would really freak me out and getting out of the hospital was pretty easy to do. And, and, you know, I had a lot of things that I could do, but I've seen it with really high level, some of the CEOs I work with who, you know, even at the billionaire level are afraid of public speaking. And so I'll say, look, when when uh, you go out to lunch with with your you know your COO and your VP of sales, I want you to stand up in the restaurant and make a toast and just say, you know, I'm really happy or I'm really proud, and here's to you guys. And and you'd be amazed at how billionaires running, you know, in this case, a huge real estate empire 
are are nervous and sweating before they go out to lunch where they're going to toast their employees. Hmm. And so so it's just it's little stuff like that that we can do every day that starts to teach us how to wire that connection to our courage center. Share an example of a story where you really face just some crazy fears. So I've got two, Jeff, that I'll share with you. One uh, was during one of these crazy adventures. And half the reason I do them is to see what it takes to, to scare me nowadays. Um, I was doing something that uh, most people know is a dog sled race called the Iditarod. Well, every year, uh, a week before the dogs go, they invite 40 adventurers. There's about 500 people who want to do this. Uh, if you can believe it. And they invite 40 adventurers to either go on foot or on fat bike uh, across Alaska. And this is February. So uh, four years ago now, I, uh, I was one of those guys and we started off, it was minus 35 degrees and it's a race. So, so you're literally pushing yourself as much as you can. And uh, this was the fourth day of the race. And you got to keep in mind, since it's an endurance race like this, you're not sleeping unless you have to. So over the four days, I slept a total of six hours. So I slept literally an hour and a half every night, uh, just enough, you know, I'd get to the point where I could hardly see straight. So I'd have to take an hour and a half, uh, basically power nap and, and press on. Then I got to, uh, finally, we were following snowmobile tracks, no, no GPS for two reasons, but one of the main one is batteries don't last in that cold, that minus 35 cold for a few days. But we're following the, the snowmobile tracks and I was literally at night just keeping Orion, uh, the, the constellation on my left. So I knew I'd be going east, I'd be going west. And I saw a sign that said McGrath, which is where the finish line was, uh, 10 miles. And I knew I was doing about three or four miles an hour. So I said, okay, well, I got a couple hours left. This is awesome. And I got rid of everything I had that was unnecessary. Uh, you know, I got rid of my extra food. I got rid of my extra fuel for the stove. And I just wanted to lighten up and get there as quickly as possible. And I'm following the snowmobile trail through the woods. And uh, all of a sudden, it starts snowing. And I'm thinking to myself... If I don't find this finish line pretty soon, I'm really screwed because it's starting to snow heavy. And if it snows too heavy, I won't have any track to follow because the, the snow will cover up the snowmobile track. And that means I'll, I'll probably have to bivy until it gets light enough out to try and see where I am or till a, a snowmobile comes by and I can you know, follow the track or something. So I'm getting really nervous about the fact that I might uh, you know, from a performance perspective, I might end up losing five or six hours because I have to stop. And then because I don't have any food and I don't have any fuel to melt water, to melt snow for water or anything like that. So then uh, I come around the corner and I see this open field and a river and I saw kind of a flashing green light, which in the distance, which meant there was an airport uh, there. So it was a McGrath airport. I knew I was close, certainly within three or four miles. And there was now a couple of inches of snow. And as I came out into this field, I saw a paw about the size of my hand. And I got some big ass hands, Jeff. <laughs> and I looked down and that, that paw print that was, you know, maybe eight or seven or eight inches in diameter scared the hell out of me. I was, I was thinking to myself, you know, there's no polar bears in the winter because they're hibernating. But there's wolf, and, and if there's a pack of them and they're hungry, I'm screwed. 
So that was, <laughs> that was a uh, that was a very scary uh, moment, and uh, you should have seen me pedaling after that. <laughs> <laughs> and spoiler alert, you made it. <laughs> yeah, spoiler alert, I made it. But then the other, you know, so uh, probably not a lot of people can relate to that one, but I tell you, it's those type of moments that make you think, man, these adventures are are just so incredible and they just let you know you're alive and everything else. But from a, a business perspective, when we got into trouble uh, financially after everything that happened, I had about 50 employees at the time. And Which, which uh, time period are you talking about? So th- this is after the... Um, uh, sorry, right after 9-11 and yeah. after um, uh, we went through this, you know, the big up and down, uh, our venture capitalist said, we don't have any more money to put into the company. And my CFO said, we got about a month of cash left. And we had to make a really tough decision at that point. And uh, the decision we came up with is we couldn't pay anyone. So we had a bunch of clients on our servers. Remember, we're, we're the first cloud hosting company. So mm-hmm. we've got all these, all this information, all these people from insurance companies to, uh, to part, you know, the U.S. Secret Service to other people on our servers. We said, we can't pay people because the money we have left, we got to pay electricity, we got to pay for uh, fiber optic and, and bandwidth. So these customers at least will keep paying their bills. And so we went to the 50 employees and I sat down and with every one of them one-on-one and I said, look, um, here's the deal. I don't know if we're going to be able to raise money, but we're going to start uh, you know, meetings tomorrow up in New York with private equity firms and venture capitalists. Uh, and this was literally uh, a month before Christmas. And I said, you know, we know you all have families and uh, you'll have to vote with your feet. And decide if you want to stay and and see if we get out of this, or uh, you know if you want to take a job. And these these were the best tech people in in the DC area. I mean, the, our CTO redid the architecture of the the Pentagon when they got hacked into. I mean, super smart guys who could go anywhere. You know, at the time, AOL and WorldCom and all these companies wanted our employees, and I was terrified. I, I thought, you know, this this thing that I'd worked so hard to build up, this thing that was my shell, you know, my cocoon that I was hiding behind as the CEO of Server Vault, this big, you know, successful company, it was just going to implode. And and I so I was I was completely horrified, and then incredibly humbled when no one left, and they all said, "Look, we'll stick through it. We 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 have faith in you guys." And uh, and so it was terrifying, but it ended up being one of the you know, one of the proudest moments in my career. Mm, that's really cool. So from a high level, Patrick, I mean, you've, you've had some big wins in business. You've also had some very low lows. And I mean, just, just for fun, you do acrobatics and decide to ride bikes across Alaska, not to mention a bunch of other things. <laughs> America uh, too. <laughs> yeah, America too. Yeah, there you go. Thinking back on all that, if somebody's listening to this and saying, okay, I recognize that I have a lot of fear in my world and I need to learn how to deal with that. I need to learn how to turn it into fuel. What's the one thing they can do such that by doing it would make turning their fear into fuel easier or unnecessary? I think the biggest thing would be to embrace failure. Hmm. And, and in fact, I don't even think it, it's failure. I, I think that people are so afraid to fail 
And, and that failure can be getting turned down from a, uh, you know, asking a, a girl out at the gym who you, you know, you've been flirting with, or it can be failure of the business not working. There's no such thing as failure unless you don't learn from it. You, hmm. you get so much smarter and you create new areas of the brain that are used every time you do something outside your comfort zone. So if you embrace that, that uncertainty, we're going into a time now of unprecedented uncertainty for most of the generations that are alive, Jeff. And the people who now can embrace that and say, you know what, I'm going to do some different things. And if I fail, that's okay, because I can go back to doing things the way I was before. But I know there's an opportunity to do things differently. There's a shift going on. And if I can embrace that uncertainty, which just means being okay with failure, then your mind is going to build an expectation. You're literally going to create a a prior belief, create an area in your brain that says, okay, we can do this and it might not succeed. And you know what? That's okay. If it doesn't succeed, we're going to learn a lot. So the next one will succeed even more. So I'd say that that's, that's the one thing is just embrace that sense of failure and then that'll take away a lot of the fear. I love it. I love it. Well, folks, there you have it. Our conversation with Wall Street Journal bestselling author, Patrick Sweeney. We highly encourage you to pick up a copy of his book, Fear is Fuel. Patrick, where can people find it? Um, so they can find it any any outlet, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, all that. Uh, they can go to fearisfuel.com. And everyone, I'd love you to follow me right now on Instagram, The Fear Guru. Or you can go to pjsweeney.com and find more information there. But on The Fear Guru, uh, do a lot of live things with neuroscientists and psychologists and some, some really cool short stuff there. So, uh, so check it out there. And thank you all so much for tuning in and spending some time learning a little bit about the brain. Yeah. And and as always, folks, we we sincerely appreciate you investing your time with us. If this episode has brought value to you, first and foremost, who is a person you know that needs to hear this message right now? Would you share it with them? It really would mean the world to us. And it's a great way to help them and empower them to go on their journey of living the one thing and facing their fear. And secondly, if you are new to the podcast, make sure you hit that subscribe button so all future episodes are automatically downloaded to your device of choice. And while you're at it, consider leaving us a rating and review on your podcast player of choice. It helps us reach more people and fulfill our purpose, which is to help you better invest your time by having a relationship with your goals so you can achieve extraordinary results. Thanks so much. And we look forward to being with you in the next episode.